Welcome to Let Me Introduce Myself. My name is Sekou Lalo. And I'm Maxine Paul. And we are pulling back the layers of black male humanity to look at what's true, what's authentic, what's deep. Co-creating space for black men to explore their humanity, blackness, maleness, and everything in between to fully introduce themselves. Steve Turner, a native New Yorker and lover of the mind, knows what it feels like to be stigmatized for being a high achiever. Listen as this screenwriter, whiz kid, and history buff weaves a compelling story of his journey from being socially awkward to aligned with purpose. Tune in for another episode of Let Me Introduce Myself as we pull back the layers of black manhood. It's real and it's authentic. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Let Me Introduce Myself. I am Sekou Lalo with my co-host, Maxine Paul, and we are introducing Stephen Turner today, all the way out in L.A., and we just want to say welcome to you. We are pulling back the layers of Black men to look at the complexity and the diversity of who we are and how we show up in the world. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Good to be here. So to start off, I'm going to let Maxime start us off today. He looks okay. like he has some good questions. First, you know, as we're, as we're doing this, we've kind of called this Let Me Introduce Myself. So we want to start off by letting you introduce who you are right now. Okay, okay. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Stephen Turner. I am from Queens, New York, and I am a writer who currently lives in Los Angeles, where I'm pursuing my career as an entertainment. I've been out here in Los Angeles since 2014. As far as notable things I wanted to share as far as African-American man, I've had a career in entertainment that's always been somewhat on the periphery, like not necessarily directly always making my money as a writer. And so but I'm very thankful because more recently, I have come into my own understanding of what my purpose is. And it, took, it only took me 44 years to find it. But particularly the scripture, Malachi 4, 6, which is the last scripture in the Old Testament. It talks about turning the hearts of the fathers to the hearts of the children and turning the hearts of the children to the hearts of the fathers. And it combined that with First Chronicles 28, verse 19, where David is preparing his son Solomon to build the temple and gives him the blueprint to do such. And he basically says that he heard it and wrote down this, these, these maps and plans for his son and with God above who gave him the directions to do it. And so marrying those two scriptures for me is very personal, but at the same time, very important. I'm a man of faith. I believe in Jesus Christ. And I know that like, I'm only here to do my purpose, given what I can do to fulfill my destiny in this world, given the time I have left. I think at time right now, I just want to share one last thing in terms of knowing those things about me. Obviously, context is always important. We're doing this interview around a time when we're going through a pandemic in our world, which we've never seen before. It's something that I have never been unexperienced before, nor has many of our peers, nor many of our elders, nor many of our young people. And so I think it's so important for what you guys are doing because you're pulling up the layers and a time when we all are pulling up the layers is what we can really do and what's possible for us to do in this world. So thank you for this forum. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. Irony of, of this pandemic is, be, is that it's not great. It's, it's a horrible thing just in terms of the deaths that are, ha are happening. But at the same time, it makes for some good writing and storytelling as well. 
And it seems like you'll have an opportunity to weave all of that together because you're like right in the, in the belly of the beast. And uh, with that said, you were able to t- kind of tell us about who you are just in terms of your accomplishments and, and what you've done. Some of that, some of that, because I know there's more, but I want to ask a little bit more of a personal question. And that is, how are you feeling today? And that question is like, how are you really feeling right in this moment? Thank you. In this very moment, I'm feeling both relaxed, at the same time, thoughtful. At the same time, I have a spirit of urgency. And also I feel my emotional feeling is one of, I would say, enthusiastic. Hmm. Which is weird because I know like, I'm a big avid baseball fan. I write a blog called Nine to Go, which is about baseball, yet we don't have sports going on at this time. It's what I recognize even in those given circumstances. My thoughtfulness comes from the fact that I'm thinking about what can I do in, in terms of just what I can do to be better today. And also recognize that question about feeling, how my feeling today is very important because I recognize my perspective on it is that I, I make a choice every day I wake up as to how I direct my feelings in a manner in which I feel as if they're going to be positive and seeing the glass half full as opposed to negative and seeing the glass half empty. And at the same time, I'm enthusiastic about opportunity that's available to us when we come out of this. But I think in, in general, we are in a, I'm relaxed, but we are in a position of a valley, I feel, but we're heading towards mountaintops in the future. So I'm relying on the fact that even in this valley moment, I have a sense of urgency that we have to get out of it, but I'm relaxed and know that while we're in it, we make the best of it. Yeah, definitely. Good perspective. I appreciate that. Now I want to kind of go into something that you've already kind of stated when you introduced yourself, but I want to go a little bit deeper of what is it that makes you who you are, that uniquely Stephen Turner? Ah, that's a great question, Maxine. But come at it with, can I come out with two points? Sure. However you want to do it, yeah. I got Sekou and Maxine. We're going out with two points here. What makes me uniquely me is first point I want to say just a given context of, we looked at the book of Matthews, right? With the gospels, right? Jesus was descended from, descended from, descended from, descended from all the way back to Abraham, David, etc. So uniquely me, I come, I come from a family of Joseph and Catherine Turner. And before them, my grandparents and before them, my old great grandparents. I come from a, a history of the South, which goes, dates back to a history of, of course, of slavery and bringing forth from Africa and before from and that are descendant of those of those slaves and their sharecroppers and Jim Crow and then New York civil rights and then New York what birthed me. That's one aspect of who I am mixed with Stephen Turner. And actually I have to give a lot of credit to my brother, who many people don't know, but my brother Joseph James Turner Jr., who actually suggested to my parents that they named me Stephen Jason Turner, as opposed to they were gonna give me Jason as my first name. So it would have been Jason something Turner. And they made Jason my middle name. It made Steve my first name. I'm very thankful for that because I went to high school. And when I got to high school, there was another Jason Scott Turner in my same class, as well as another Stephen Seymour in my same class. So I had both Stevens and Jasons, nearly nearly the same exact name as me. Anyway, I digress. But what makes me that uniquely me is just growing up in that foundation. My parents who birthed me from a history of growing up in the church history of, of going to elite Ivy League schools and prep schools. But then at the same time, what also makes me uniquely me from a different, more John 
abstract perspective is that I have, I've discovered that it's better to be authentic than to be somewhat a copy of someone else. When I go to college, I started my interest in wanting to do filmmaking. And this is the late nineties, mid to late nineties. So many people at that time said, Oh, you like another Spike Lee. And you guys are down in Atlanta where of course Spike Lee went to college. And of course we hails from Morehouse, but, and he's of course from Brooklyn. I'm from Queens, but I'm not another anybody. And so therefore what makes me uniquely Steven Turner is the fact that I can be an authentic me. And I recognize that meanness makes me better and different than someone else trying to be a copy of someone else. I'll say my last point to that is that um, I'm very thankful for mentors, not only mentors I know, but mentors I've read about. For instance, I think about Alice Walker. I think about Toni Morrison. I think about James Baldwin. I think about the history of literature and black culture mm-hmm. and recognize we have had some historically amazing Maya Angelou, Gwendolyn Brooks, August Wilson, Audrey Kennedy, the list goes on and on. Isabel Wilkerson and, and Warmth of Other Sons currently a writing history of which I find my own place in, not just as a filmmaker, but not just as a storyteller, but as an author, as a writer, immersed in what I can provide that puts together all my experiences and generates something for which is a different experience from what the person who reads it. You know? So that's, that's what makes me uniquely me. That's good, yeah. I appreciate how you connected the dots all the way back to biblical history and then brought it into kind of contemporary American history and tied in kind of the civil rights era, James Baldwin and all of these people, which means you, you know, you got big shoes to fill. You got, you got big shoes to fill, which I'm sure you will do and, and go above and beyond. And right along, right in the, in the vein of that question, let me ask this, what roles do you play in your life? Why? And how do those roles impact who you are, impact your identity? That's a great question, Seiko. The first role I play is a spoiled younger brother, baby of the family, right? I started there. The next role, and, I, and in some ways, I'm still that in my family, my mm. immediate family. I'm not married, no children, so I don't have my own immediate family on my own. The next role I've played is a uh, whiz kid, smart, nerd to some extent, in the school educational space. Next role I have played have been, has been a, uh, I would say, I guess also sometimes socially awkward. Sometimes, uh, you know, the kind of outsider who brings in other outsiders, but extroverted enough to kind of still be able to play the game of mm. in a given crowd. I can talk, speak, kind of have a conversation with some different people and enjoy their presence. And I would say also one of the role I've played comes from, I'm familiar with the, if you guys are familiar with the book by Malcolm Gladwell, it's called uh, The Tipping Point. And The Tipping Point, he talks about mavens. He talks about salesmen. And then he talks about the last group, which I feel I fall into, which is connectors. Some of whom I know people, and I can connect you with somebody else, because so, I know this person would, would be helpful and beneficial for you to know them. And actually, having gone away to boarding school at 14, and then gone away to college at 18 in other cities from New York, I lost my accent. I lost some connections to other people, but I also gained the sense of it's not about just always thinking in your own small community. It's also about building a broader community that makes it more global. And in some ways, I'm very thankful in that role now we all have is that we all have this ability to sort of, we can put something on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, 
YouTube TV, and it can be over in another country, another time zone immediately. Which when we were growing up as a, I'm in my 40s, but growing up even in our in, in the 1980s, 1990s, we didn't have that ability to be so globally minded and in this on our space. And so I definitely feel as if I definitely feel as if one role I also play in being a connector is someone to think about connecting, the, like you said, connecting the dots across spaces that a black man from Queens who grew up as I did might not have always been in those spaces, but I am now and could be in different, whether it's a space of a, a Zoom call or a space of a Hotchkiss gathering, which is, or a space of a Harvard, you know, Yale football game, you know? So those are some of the answers. I hope that answered your question. Sure. If you can talk about one of those roles and how it impacts your identity in a little bit more detail. Sure, sure. I'm interested in the socially awkward. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, okay, I'll go there. Okay, okay. That's a great one to look at because that's one of the ones I shy away from because that role is not as, I'm not as confident in that role. I can't even speak of being awkward as being confident. But at the same time, I recognize where, where I'm weak, God can be strong. And I also recognize that socially awkwardness, how it impacts my life is that I might have a different perspective than someone else on the same thing that we all, that seemingly there's one consensus about. For instance, Black Lives Matter, right? That term, right? That thing about what we all want. I recognize, I feel that it's, it's interesting enough, my pastor who talks about a lot about how the civil rights movement of the era of, of, of Dr. King in the 60s, 50s, and 60s had the, the high ground of recognizing, one, it was already a, a system stacked against the people who we were trying to free from oppression. And in Black Lives Matter, we have the same problem with the issue of police brutality. The same live, our lives being not seen as citizens, equal citizens in our own country. But at the same time, it also got to a point where which you have white people, Asian people, Latino people who don't see themselves in that Black Lives Matter. And so how do we then bring a coalition for that? Everyone needs to recognize all, I mean, not, I'm not saying all lives matter in that way in terms of like Black Lives Matter, all lives matter. I mean, what I'm saying is just that like being socially awkward in terms of seeing it like not seeing everything the same way maybe the consensus might see it such that we have to recognize now how do we break down some barriers to get to have inclusion for people to see the way in to a matter that has weight for all of us and how it impacts them and how it impacts us, right? Even to the extent that like the Colin Kaepernick kneeling in football, I felt like that became spun by our current president in the White House. It became spun by the current NFL teams as if that does, he was trying to disagree with Americanness or the flag or patriotism. When of course he was only trying to bring attention to an issue of concern about the lives of African-American men and women who are brutalized by our, our police forces. Yet it was spun in a way in which he doesn't have the ownership of how it's perceived. And then, so that's, that's one way. And also I, I would speak to awkwardness in terms of relationship to Christ. So dating, which can be sometimes another subject, which, you know, I'm 44, still single, and that can be awkward too. But I hope that answers the question. I, 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 I'm feeling more vulnerable now even. Okay, that's what we're getting to. You yeah. got it. So now we, we've kind of like, you know, worked around it. And, you know, the whole theme of this is kind of looking into black men. So I think it's important to ask, like, what is your relationship with other black men and even other people Black people that are not men. Okay, sure. 
Well, first, I start family. The relationship with my family and black men and women in my life has been supportive. It has been enriching. And then at the same time, I would say some of my strongest friendships have been with brothers who I've gone to school with. As a black man, I feel I see this world in relation to my peers who are white or Asian or Latino in a manner in which I recognize some things they don't see. Some, they, have some, they probably have some blind spots that I don't have. And I probably have some blind spots to the degree which I, I will never be, I will never walk in this world as a, as a Muslim man or as a white Irish man or as a you know, Italian American. And at the same time, I recognize that. And then in my relationship as a man in regards to women, I've had sisters in my life who I've loved. And I've, I've actually, two years ago, <laughs> this is funny. Two years ago, actually, today is actually April 25th, 2020. And today is the woman I was dating two years ago who lives in Texas. This is her birthday. And I won't give her name because this is like a podcast and et cetera. It doesn't matter. But we were considering getting married two years ago, 2018, considering getting married to this woman. Today's her birthday. So I won't ever forget it. So I, and I will say this too. I see a therapist. And one thing I've seen a therapist, we've been unpacking with relationships regarding how I saw dating from high school, college after college into my current life, right? And one thing I saw was that rejection was not something I took easily. And when you're not taking rejection easily, it can also lead to like not being willing to put yourself out there to try the next time. And so in doing that, you know, I kind of delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed, not denied, but like delayed getting a relationship that was long-term, the marriage that could happen. And also, I definitely have made my choice that I want to be with a black woman who knows Christ and who could, I could build my family with. And I feel as if some degree in my 40s is different than it would have been had it been in my 30s or had it had been in my 20s, I made that decision. Now, one other thing I would say about relationships with other people as an African-American man, as a black man, I felt like I feel as if I've also benefited from relationships that have been strong and honest, transparent, empowering both of black men, white men, all across the shades. And I've very few times where I've had clashes just across man to man, or maybe that's also from my disposition. I'm not saying generally someone who like comes, is, gets angry outwardly. That's some of the ways I would answer that question. I hope that got to some of it, Maximum. Beautiful, thank you. Yeah, appreciate that, Stephen. Next question is, and you kind of answered or touched on this earlier, but like what, or who in your upbringing influenced who you are today? In my upbringing, one person influenced my big time influenced my dad, both in a way in which he expected me to do well and he supported me financially and also like he supported me in terms of like if I'm pursuing something, go after it, right? And so even today, I think that's been a big influence on my life. He was also help usher me into understanding that there are other mentors in my life um, who've come into my life who've been examples of what I want to do. For instance, the most recent person in that, the gentleman I just worked for recently, who is a writer-director, I, I feel like he's also been an influence in my life because he's someone who I aspire to be like. He currently has a film on Netflix. He show runs a show for HBO. And he probably doesn't so see how much of an influence he has it's a great impact because I see someone who looks like me, who is what I would aspire to be like professionally. And even my dad set me up for that because my dad was in business for himself. My dad had Mr. Softy ice cream truck in New York City. 
you know, growing up on a an ice cream truck was great, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, but also what I saw is that he ha- he was in business for himself, and he he ran the show. He was leading the charge. He was worried about, am I going to get more sales? Am I going to make payroll? Am I going, you know, all those things he did has provided me with an education on what I have to handle my own business and my own operating needs financially. And actually, one other person I'll mention, I mentioned him because high school was a big place where I also sought out a lot of, high school directed a lot of how I shaped my life. And I don't know how it is for some other people, but I went to a boarding school in Connecticut. And at that boarding school, I went to at 14, 18, right? So very young, very impressionable. I was a wrestler. That was my sport. And our wrestling coach was a tough, tough, demanding coach that some people could not put up with. But I put up with him, and he helped bring out of me some things I wouldn't have expected that I, wouldn't, that I would not have expected come, come out of me in terms of just success and kind of endurance in terms of integrity. At the same time, this gentleman probably wasn't the most nice person to other people, to put it that way. At the same time, sometimes even people who can be difficult can draw out of you things that can be beautiful. And so it's not about the person, it's about what they can help you become, given a, given a medal and the testing and the sharpening of iron that you are to be. But also too, and I've had, and the last thing I'll say to do is that it's also given me examples about how not to be a mentor, how not to be an example of someone else. Because I think you can still tell its truth in love as opposed to telling the truth in pain and in anger. That is not the best way to draw out somebody's most authentic best self. Yeah, man, that's a great answer. I, I really appreciate you bringing up that point about people that, you might not necessarily like, or you might not necessarily gel with, but how to have a perspective on your relationships in such a way that you can be open to being changed by them, even if it doesn't mean your best friends, which is really a, a critical point. And, you know, as a black man, that's, that takes on a different dynamic than maybe, you know, a white person. So that's great. That's beautiful. Now I want to really understand a little bit more about you. I know there are things that you hold in, you don't want to say, I want you to say like, what is something that you just hold in and you just like, you have times that you're like, I, oh, I want to say this, but you don't. This is your chance to kind of bring that up and we can talk about that. In terms of what, like what, what area of Any, Anything, I mean, I mean, I'm talking about your experience as a black man in this world, you know, whatever it is, something that you struggle with, you've seen that have just irritated you, frustrated you. Those are the things that I'm trying to look at. Okay. Well, now professionally, I'm a writer. And when I came out to Los Angeles, I saw myself as a writer, dramatic writer, willing to look at points from a serious perspective. But in fact, I've had an awakening that I want to write comedy. So one thing I will say that I like, you're not seen as comedic. You're not seen as like the funny guy, the comedian, you know, it's hard to be someone who can delve into writing and (laughs) change your whole perspective because people people know the class clown right people know the identify who tells all the jokes because whatever reason they're just funny they delivery everything that's not innately me now i'm a more serious composed poised dramatic writer but at the same time i recognize that you ask me what would i want to say that i have not said what i want to say that i have not said is that i can write comedy (laughs) <laughs> That's what I want to say. Because the thing about it is that 
even recently, the last show, the last couple of shows I worked on, I'm not going to go into which ones they were, but the last couple of shows I worked on, I definitely was probably seen as like, you know, the serious guy, you know, like the guy in the room who's like, not necessarily the most comedic person. The awareness I have is that sometimes people are challenged due to things that will help them best explore the part of their life that they need to explore through something that's not going to bring tears, but in fact, something's going to bring like laughter because I'm willing to expose that part of me. For instance, I'll just say, for instance, like even how I brought up the socially awkward thing, being 44, never married, being 44. And that brings up a lot of issues for people when they, women I date, they're like, well, what's wrong with you? You know, never engaged, never, never divorced, never, no kids. What's going on here? Then it brings up, I mean, there are other parts of my, my, my biography that I could go into, but at the same time, like I am a normal person as normal as anyone else, but I have not found the right woman to be my partner to go through life for however long we live for the rest of our lives after we say I do. But you can only imagine that brings up, you know, and then, of course, you know, they look at, well, what's your credit score? What's your finances? What are your, what are your past girlfriends? Who have you dated? What, you know, they want to know everything about you, you know? And I'm saying a young lady who was interested in that. So that would say, going forward, we build our own history together. That's why I want to say that. If I can say, I'm a comedy writer, and we go on to build our own history together. And I, I thank you guys for this forum, because some of these questions you guys are asking, which I love, I haven't had to ask myself these same questions of myself yet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, that's the key point of what I'm glad what you guys are doing because you're putting people to say, just listen to our lives and ask ourselves the, our questions that we need to express in a manner in which once we express them, we come to a better understanding of who we are. Yeah, that's great. That makes me think about Howard Thurman and his quote, you know, just just listening to the sound of the genuine. Ah. <laughs> but in order to do that, you have to be able to ask the questions that lead to that genuine place. I yes. place authenticity. And it sounds like we're kind of on that track, you know, with asking you these questions now. And it's interesting to hear you express how you express yourself in this last question from Maxime, because that sounded like something you really wanted to say too. Like something that was like you were holding it and you really wanted to say that too. So it's good that that came out too. And this leads into my next question because as a actor, I'm always paying attention to body language and translating body language into meaning. Ah. So when you answered um, his questions, you were effusive. And you kind of stepped back and stepped back into, into the camera and said it with some passion, like you were holding yeah. it in. So I feel like we're touching on something here, which leads to my next question, which is, what does it mean for Stephen to be free? Ah. What does that mean in its totality for you to be free? By the way, I love the Howard Thurman reference. Because I read a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. Of course, of course. Oh, Always in the king's pocket. Yeah. Yes. That's a great uh, what does it mean for me to be Stephen Jason Turner to be free? Yeah. I think about that. Well, for me to be completely free, I feel like there's a this spectrum. There's a level which I already am in a degree of free. I, I say that not jokingly, but to the extent that 
I live in a country where I can exercise my right to vote. I can exercise my right to worship. I can exercise my right to my freedoms that no one can bar me from given the fact that I'm not in prison, not in a situation where I'm detained somewhere. So in that way, I have a sense of freedom. But what is far, if we're going even deeper into that for myself, I recognize that freedom and being free as a person is breaking out of barriers. Because of course, free is versus the opposite of that would be locked up or to be a slave to something or to be a follower of something that you cannot no, no longer have any agency over. So for me, to be completely free, I would feel as if I need to continue to exercise my strength in every aspect of what I, and my trust for God. So I know that I'm not completely free there yet. And what I mean by exercise my strength and my complete trust for God is that one way to measure it would be a monetary thing. Another way to measure it would be a emotional level in terms of, I think I would be greater and freer in partnership than in isolation and independent. Because I also think that there's a level of freedom that comes from me vis-a-vis -a, -vis a partner that I'm working with we both have the ability to exercise authenticity and regard for one another. And I think also is that I, two things about the, to the freedom in that spectrum. I also think that my, my hope is that I'm already to, to agree freer than someone else, which I don't know if that's the best way to compare to somebody else, but in terms of like, I look at, I'll just, I'll bring up a hot topic here. Kanye West, right? Okay. Kanye West. Is he to do agree free or not free? Some people refer to him as, I want the old Kanye. I want that old, you know, drop, college dropout Kanye. Now he's singing about Jesus is King, you know, and, and clothes on Sunday and all these other things and trying to do his thing with faith and church Sunday service. But some people, and I bring it up because it's a hot topic in terms of like our faith and how we see him or don't see him as a worship leader or regard his authenticity and what he's doing in, in terms of music, in terms of faith, gospel. But I see him as someone for whom he's got some degree of freedom to say whatever he would like to say, do whatever he would like to do, and have no restrictions and have a following of people who would help him communicate and distribute what he would like to do. So I kind of say he's got a freedom and appeal that I would, I would actually admire. But I also recognize maybe I admire just the distribution of his freedom. And what I mean by that is that like, Working in an industry where I could write, I do write. I write my blog. I write scripts. When I go to a cocktail party, they're going to say, okay, well, what have I seen that you've done? What have you been in that I've seen? What have you written that has been on this cable's network? Now, that's not a degree of which it, it suspends my freedom, but it does put a wall up to how far my freedom reaches in the world to make an impact, which you guys kind of had a point earlier about like what roles I play that make an impact on life. And the degree to which I can be free and someone else is still locked up, I'm not as free as I'd ever want to be. Until everyone is, is as free as and up to a higher level of freedom, mm -hmm. in some ways, mm -hmm. trapped. Um, so anyway, so great. go on. But I think we're at 144, by the way. And then Until we are all free, none of us is free. Yes. <laughs> That's, That's it, yeah. <laughs> Right. No, I appreciate that. So I want to kind of ask a little bit about that because you've you've talked about your struggles, 
and you've said mostly it's been in your professional career and in your romantic life. And I see that as a place to get towards that freedom is mm. to overcome those two things. How have you been working with and dealing with those uh, areas in your life? Thank you. Now, I feel like I should, I should have a copay for you guys. This is like a good therapy <laughs> session. My therapist would, be, would, would say, you know, I hope you're not going to change your, you know, se separate, you know, get some new therapists. But anyway, how would I, can you ask that question one more time? Yeah. So I see, you know, as we're talking about freedom and your struggles, and I saw, we heard you saying that, correct me if I'm wrong, the biggest struggles you've had is in your professional career, in your romantic relationships. How have you been dealing with those in order to move yourself forward and get to more freedom? Thank you. Prayer. First prayer. Second, work. Doing the work. Third, and what I mean by doing the work, the same level of passion I had to get the good grade in high school, to get the good grade in college, to do the SATs and to go and do achieve. I bring that same passion out to my work and my craft as a writer. You know, I'm up at 5.30 to read other people's scripts. I give them comments. And so professionally, I know I'm growing. And I know looking back, I didn't work as hard as I needed to have worked. And I was looking for a, a kind of get over, come easy. I know somebody, you can help me kind of aspect in entertainment that, it, that exists, but doesn't keep you honed to what you need to do professionally long term. And then at the same time, socially, again, prayer, you know, I recognize it's no accident that I haven't found the wrong person to be with for the rest of my life. You know, that, that's not an accident. God's kept her away. <laughs> so therefore, I know, therefore, he has the right woman for me to be with for the rest of my life at some point. And therefore, prayer is key to that. And at the same time, doing the work socially, it's being more, it's being more understanding that I come to this table with something to bring, with some aspect of myself that is valuable and putting away the lies I used to believe in. A friend of mine, named, who's a comedian, I won't give her name, but a friend of mine who's a comedian, she does a Toastmasters speech. And in it, she talks about how the lies we tell ourselves that we believe in. And ultimately, many of us have believed lies that I'm not tall enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not rich enough, I'm not light-skinned enough, not dark skin enough, not whatever enough. Those are lies that I've believed in in different forms and fashions that I'm slowly continuing to break down and say, the truth is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The truth is I'm more than a conqueror. The truth is I have the ability, Deuteronomy 8, 818, where God gives us the ability to get wealth. The truth is I'm not those things I thought I was, I needed to have been to get where I need to be. And so socially and professionally, I know that I'm walking in the extent that what you attract is, is what you're going to get sometimes, right? And if, you, and if I've attracted some things that are into my life that are not for me, it's best that, that we found that out and move on different ways. And then as far as professionally, I recognize the work is still in, in front of me. And so I'm, I'm just kind of pushing ahead to that. So I would say prayer, work. And then third component of what I'm doing to address any lack in those areas, socially and professionally, is also understanding my own, my own weaknesses that somebody might see as a weakness, but for them, they have a strength that balances out that weakness. For instance, I just developed a relationship with a partner for writing who she and I 
were able to finish the script in one month. It used to take me sometimes years to finish the script. But in writing with a partner, you have accountability built in. You have a relationship built in to say, I can draw ideas of one another. And it can speed up and accelerate growth in an area where I was weak. So that's why I feel as if for myself, I address my weaknesses. I remember that I pray and I, and I remember to do work. That will address the problems I've had socially, professionally, and then let God do his part as I do my part. Got you. Yeah. It sounds like what we are learning is that faith for you is the through line, kind of the anchor of your whole kind of life experience. And you are, your identity and, and who you are as a man is being shaped out of that context. And which brings me to this question, and I'm, I think I'm going to ask it in two parts, but we are, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, in the midst of a pandemic. And that has really significantly changed the way how we show up in the world, and it has an impact on who we are as people. And so I guess I'm going to ask kind of in what ways is this coronavirus pandemic impacting who you are? And more importantly, what does your faith have to say about that when things are different? People aren't going to church. The churches seems to be look different now. It's like, really like how about your neighbor like do you do you love your neighbors do you like you know love the people around you when you don't have like a position or a title to attach to mm -hmm. who you are it's just like you just you the human being has to show up in a certain way so what does that mean for you and what does the mask on yeah 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 <laughs> right that's right right when you're exposed when you're completely exposed start with the coronavirus pandemic and what is that how is that impacting you this, what's going on now, and then talk about the faith. Okay. Well, I love these open-ended questions. I can feel like I'm just diving in now. Yes, sir. Swim. So first, as far as the pandemic, this is April 25th. I feel like it really hit home March, the week of March 10th, yep. when NBA closed down its shop and all the yep. sports stopped and stay-at-home began. And, you know, that was second week of March. We're now in the fourth, third to fourth week of April. So we're looking at, you know, quite a few weeks now. Um, I've shown up in the world with empathy because I recognize I've not been directly touched where a family member has died or um, a loved one I know directly, a friend has died. At the same time, it does not mean I'm not hurt and harmed and my pain doesn't go out for my community in New York. My family in New York from Queens, particularly. I had my coworker, he had a friend who, he, who lost a parent and her brother in the same day to COVID. So it has come up to be something that's just been heavy on my heart and reminding me of my faith to the extent that we are all here for a purpose. And given our purpose, we all have a limited amount of time to fulfill it. And when it comes, it comes, we don't know when that time is going to come. So therefore, best start being about our purpose and about our life story being written today. Not tomorrow, not, not worrying about what we didn't do yesterday, but really today. The other thing I will say globally, I think I've also seen how some of my peers are very, very smart. 
I've been on Zoom calls with people who are doctors in Dallas and in Orange County who I went to school with, who are now on the front lines of this thing. I've been on calls with people on Zoom calls again because we're all social distancing. The gentlemen who are in, in the finance industry and telling me about OPEC, about the effect of like what we're going to do with oil and gas and for how the market is going to and be impacted. How how I've been on a friend. One of my friends is works for a bank. He knows how they're trying to get loans to people. And that what that looks like. So like the people I went to school with are doing the action work on the ground. That and then and then educating me as to what that looks like. And I think I've been. I've grown in my appreciation of, you know, the level of which circles rise together. And then I would say, as far as your second part of your question, one clear note, isolation will give you time to be by yourself. So how we, except how we put that time in is sort of however we choose to do it. I have a computer in my apartment that's for my job, so therefore I do work eight hours a day for them. But the other 16 hours a day, when I'm not going out to anywhere, I'm one, saving money on gas and saving money on going out. I'm also choosing to spend my time in Word, choosing to spend my time in writing, choosing to spend my time communicating with people that I love via Zoom or via phone or via text. And I have a whole library of material I've been going to. Yesterday I looked at the, a poem. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the show Little Fires. It's on Hulu. Just heard about it, yeah. Harry Washington and Reese Witherspoon. My friend recommended it to me. I watched the pilot episode of it yesterday. They mentioned a poet named Adrian Rich, whose work I was not as familiar with, but I was like, let me go find, read her poem. I have a poem in my, in my very apartment that has, she's in called uh, Dive in the Wreckage. Wonderful poem. Right after reading her poem, I read a poem by Lucille Clifton, who went to Howard, who's a black woman poet. So I recognize my faith is saying, trust God, because he's still here. God is still showing up even in the midst of all these deaths, all the mid, all the midst of this crisis, in the midst of anything. He's not alarmed. He's not surprised. God's not concerned that we're not going to get through it because those who do get through it on this side of eternity will still be able to tell the story to the people who are coming after us, right? And so I feel greater part of the world and also, like you said, the thing about neighbors. I've been convicted because think about it, and you talk about freedom, we are convicted you lose part of your freedom. Literally. But one thing that convicted me was that I don't know my neighbors that well. And I was actually, one neighbor below me, they actually moved out. So there's only two other neighbors now in my, my direct line of entryway in my door, my apartment. The neighbors across the street from me, across the hall from me, rather, I've connected with them more. I know I know their name. We've like, we, trade, we exchanged, like, I brought them some fruit that I got. They gave me some water that they had. You know, it was a very generous gift each of us is to sort of show appreciation for one another. The neighbors below me, I still don't know very well. I haven't really engaged with them yet. So in that way, like you said, church is not just going out in the four walls of a, of a building. It's also the community you build as believers or as extending your faith to others. And I also want to say too, Resurrection Sunday was very different, right? The power of going to church on High Holy Day Easter and High holy days for the Jewish faith and, and, uh, and Passover, or what now Ramadan for our Muslim brothers and sisters. Like all these days are now done in isolation, not done in connective, collective groups. Yet it's still the empowerment of God to step in and say, Look, are you doing this for the group or are you doing this for me? 
And that's a question I, now I give you guys. In terms of like, and I, I mean you, the audience, right? Anything we do in faith is a question not just only for what we do, you know, so on the on the horizontal level, person to person, but also on the vertical level, person to God. So that's my answer. Mm, okay, that's good stuff, man. Now I'm pulling some pieces together since uh, you're a writer, you know, you're a man of faith, and we're in this pandemic. I've been doing some research of the yeah. last pandemic we had like this in America, the Spanish okay. flu. I talked to Seiko about this a little bit. It was when we came back from World War One. They let yeah, they let black people into the war. So it was like it was like amazing for them to see the black battalions coming back. And it's interesting because right after that was the Harlem Renaissance. And it's been in a lot of history, whenever we had like pandemics, plagues, people went into isolation and created great art. And now as an artist, is there anything that you're feeling like there's like some great art coming out of you through this? Yes. Before? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Thank you, Maxime, and thank you for connecting the historical aspect of the fact that we have, there's nothing new under the sun. We've seen these things, that type of things before. Affirmatively, yes, there's great stuff coming out of me because I'm growing more confident in my own ability to tell a story that is important to someone else to hear. And I thank you for this forum because it's also important for someone else to listen to in a podcast. So I, in March 8th, 2020, I completed my first marathon. I ran the LA Marathon. And it changed my life, not just the marathon itself, but preparing for a marathon. And I recognize every one of us has a marathon in us. And a marathon is different than a sprint. A sprint, you can see the finish line at the beginning of the race. A marathon, you can't. You have to just know after you go a certain distance, no matter how much time, no matter what rate, you get that far, you go that distance, you will reach your destination. And so as far as you asking about what can I bring to this renaissance, which is about to happen, but you're already calling it out, so it's going to happen, right? You know, Maxime just called it out right now. Mm -hmm. And, and Sekou agrees with me. So two or three gathered that we is in the midst. What I would say to this, the part that I play in it is that I recognize whom much is given, much is required. I've been given an education that far is comparable to many who have gone on to do great things, but at the same time is of nothing if I do nothing with it. So therefore, I bring a compassion for stories that don't use negatives to tell all positives. What I mean by that is just that, and I've never even said it in that phrase before. If we look at English, the English language, you don't want to use a double negative. You don't say, don't say I don't do nothing. You say I don't do anything. You don't use double negatives. So therefore, just to look, just to look at some of our brethren in the rap industry. Right? I grew up with Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Run DMC, 80s, early 90s hip hop, right? Then we get introduced to you know, West Coast, and I'm not putting any bad because I'm in the West Coast now, but to the degree to which gangsterism of rap or the negative side, because we had it already, we had, we'd see the, the underbelly of our lives, right? The message by, by you know, I forget the name of the group, but from the Bronx, it was the message. So we see that there's negative things going on in our community, but it's not glorified to the extent that it's also elevated to be the only part of our community which we elevate. And so when you say the Harlem Renaissance, I think of Langston Hughes, I think of Zora Neale Hurston, you know, two, two writers right there who for whom they told our story from all different aspects, nuanced and 
delivered us in a way in which we're not just seen as an other, we're, we're directly in the middle and have agency, but also not just directly seen as a problem or a trauma or, a, or something that, we're, that, that can be misused, misconstrued, and, mis, and, and turned around and misinterpreted. We didn't talk about the use of the N-word in this talk, for instance, another hot topic, right? As a writer, I hope never to have to use that word as a word, just to be a word gratuitously in my scripts. Also, I'm glad we brought up Little Fires. A woman suggested to me I watch that. That was not even on my radar as a, as a black man. Not because it's not a good story, it's just that it's presented as a story for women. It's got a lead in Reese Witherspoon, it's got a lead in Kerry Washington, it's got no male leads I would know about. Not interested in it. When a black woman suggests I see it, I saw it, and I'm like, this is a well done show. I'm gonna continue to watch. And the same way we need to watch what our sisters are doing, they need to watch what their brothers are doing. And part of the renaissance that we have is that we have to address where we're weak, which goes back to your question earlier, Seku, of like, what are those, those and even your question, Max, I mean, what are those that I wanna definitely say? What I definitely wanna say in, in this renaissance is that we have to look, go beyond cliche, go beyond what we're comfortable with saying, and get to a point with which we deal with truth. We deal with subtle reality that's not just overtly negative. I'll just end there. I love it. That's cool. great. Thank you. Yeah, that's great, man. You really gave us some great nuggets that we're going to take away with us. I think, <laughs> thank, I think you returned the favor on the counseling part. And I'll, I'll first start by my, with, with my kind of sidebar question. And since you are a tribe called Quest, Cat, you know, if I asked you the question, can I kick it? You would say, there you go. <laughs> representing, representing. As I was listening, and you, you really dropped some really good nuggets and gave some nuances in your answers that I don't remember we necessarily got in some of our other interviews, which was really great. But there's some key kind of points that stick with me and that resonate with how you show up. One of which is stillness. You talked about being still particularly like in the pandemic and the necessity of being still so that you can hear the sound of the genuine. You mentioned that that this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And so you, you're looking with the long view and trying your best not to sweat the small stuff along the way. And then there's your faith, the faith component, which is kind of the anchor and helps give you a perspective about all of these things that kind of keeps you centered in your purpose. And so that sounds like, to me, like a formula for success. And that's not necessarily monetary success. It's about what you've been talking about just in terms of kind of being your best self. And so if you're able to kind of hold on to all three of those kind of principles in your life, what would it look like for you five years from now? What would your life look like? if you continue to kind of live all of those principles and those meaningful kind of aspects of your life with some degree of consistency? Thank you that. I thank you for that question, Seku, because I hear the genuine listening. And, and as an actor, I remember you said, it's not always about the lines you're giving, mm-hmm. it's how you listen to the other person so you can hear the lines being spoken to you. That's right, that's right. And, wow, five years from now, so I will be 49, approaching 50. I'll be ready for my colonoscopy. We right. haven't had it earlier. We got to have. We got to take care of our health. If we're going to get older. I will be showing up in the world consistently, and people who are not consistent will drop off. The people who are doing the work will continue to to assimilate and work with me. That's my first quick answer. 
long-term answer to that is that I project five years from now, I'm just going to speak. I will eliminate my debt. I will become a lender and not a borrower. I will found a partner to marry. I will have started a charitable organization where we start giving out, one, awards to people who write good blogs. We asked about freedom earlier. And working with a friend of mine who's a pastor, I decided I'm going to stop waiting for somebody to give me permission to write. So I started my blog, 9 to gocom January 1st, 2019. It was one of the markers of my own freedom because ultimately the, the term comes from I had nine more baseball parks to visit before I visited all 30 teams in Major League Baseball. And so I would also imagine five years from now, we'll have already accomplished that feat if and when we get back to baseball, given the pandemic. And I don't see it happening this year. And you're according to, so all this can, we can, I want us to look at this five years from now and say, Absolutely. how did Absolutely. this work out? Because I will also imagine five years from now, we'll still be having these conversations because we need to. It's vital. It is vital. Five years from now, consistently, I also imagine I will be dealing with transitions of the elder generation my parents, and dealing with transitions in the younger generation, my nieces, my nephews, and if I'm a little blessed with my own children. And so therefore, I will be in a different stage of my life five years from now. And lastly, I will say I will have read more work, I will have written more work, and I will produce something that when I go to conversations and, and some parties, they'll say, oh, I've seen that. You did that? That was good. That's and good. it was funny. Good answer, man. Yeah, I mean, you dropped some jewels, brother. You dropped some jewels. Even beyond, like, the kind of the, the questions and everything, I'm happy to and feel honored to get to know you more because of the questions and Maxime, and just to have Maxime in the space, and I'm sure he can speak for himself, but I think the most important thing is that we walk away having gotten to know each other a little bit more and having a bond and a relationship that we can build on. So we appreciate and love you, brother. Thank and we you, brother. And I have you on the show. And share your heart, man, and being brave and vulnerable. Steve and Jason Turner, I really enjoyed our conversation. It felt like it touched on a number of things that we went over during this initial season of Let Me Introduce Myself. It was a marathon, not a sprint. It's good to hear you're finding and developing yourself personally and in your work as a writer, putting in the prayer and the work on the ground every day to make sure you're the comedy writer that you want to be. I look forward to what you put out in this next renaissance. I heard hints of a radically positive story that empowers and affirms, so I'll be looking out. And ladies, you heard him. He may be a little awkward, but he's single and open to mingle. Socially distanced, of course. This was another episode of Let Me Introduce Myself, Come back next week for our final guest, Samuel Gonzalez. You're in for a treat.